the sun came up, the daylight came up, and I thought, oh my God, I saw the human body that were laying everywhere, all sleeping. Women, young, old kids, men, everybody was sleeping, just like herd of sheeps, all sleeping everywhere. All these people that were captured the day before or night before. And I just got crushed and I couldn't believe it. I said, oh my God, what am I going to do now? I'm Shada Omidvar, and this is The Hopeful, episode three, The Kiss. We left off the last episode when my dad got taken off of a bus headed to the Nogales border and thrown into a Mexican detention center. The room he was in was so dark that he couldn't see a thing, but he could hear people snoring and coughing. Now, after waking up to the sun and getting a chance to take in his environment, the feeling of panic is starting to sink in. So later on that day, the bus came, the load, all the people, we went to town, it's called Nogales. Nogales is the border of Texas and the Mexican border. I learned afterwards, uh, Nogales, when you go towards the border, Nogales is almost like a T-shape or a fork type. You turn right, you go towards the Texas border. You turn left, you go to Tijuana. So I almost made it to the border, but I got caught. When I look up Nogales on Google Maps, it's right up at the border with Arizona. The American side is also called Nogales. But I can't quite tell where the fork is. There's a definitive split in the roads about 100 kilometers away in Santa Ana. Nogales is a major entry point for Mexican migrants trying to enter the U.S., probably because in certain remote areas far from the city, the wall at the border becomes a fence or sometimes no barrier at all. During the 1980s, the U.S. migrant crisis was at its peak, with one million migrants apprehended at the border annually. It's crazy to think that my dad is just one who makes up this astronomical number. This building my dad was detained in is made up of one large room where everyone slept at night. Attached to this room was a yard with very tall walls. This is where everyone was during the day, monitored by armed guards up in towers at every corner of the yard. On the other side of the building was a main jail with cells filled with prisoners who were incarcerated for other reasons. It was all open. And one bathroom, one outdoor bathroom, one indoor bathroom. So they give us a a blanket. I looked at blanket, the blanket that has so many holes in it, it was hardly any doing in any blanket. And then a few minutes later, one of the Spanish older gentlemen came to me and said, you have any money? I said, yeah, I have a little bit of money. He called the guard, asked what's my name, Amir, ordered some milk. And I couldn't figure out what the milk is for. And I looked at the, uh, the table, all this carton of uh, one liter milk was cut in half, and everybody had their name on it. And he showed me, he pointed to me, he said, drink this milk, this is your uh, dishes while you're here. So drink the milk, cut it in half, write my name on it, then became that became our uh, dishes. So obviously I had absolutely no idea what's going on, what is this, what was that all about. Sometime in the afternoon, two people showed up with a big pot full of leftovers from the regular inmates. Whatever left over, 
doctor would bring it to us, which is just the water or juice of the beans or whatever, and spicy. And give us a two piece of uh, tortilla cornbread and with that juice, no fork, no cutlery, nothing. That was our food for intake. I looked at that food, I looked at the, the bread, and the guy says, eat it. And it was so spicy, it was so spicy, my body wasn't used to those type of food. Persian food usually isn't very spicy. Actually, I can't think of a dish that is. Full of beautiful aromatic spices, sure. What makes a typical Persian dish would be a hearty stew with beef and a ton of herbs, maybe some veggies or beans served over rice. The world of rice dishes in Iran is endless. You can make an entire meal of just different types of specialty rices. A staple of Persian food is also kebab. Beef, chicken, or lamb marinated for hours in yogurt and saffron before being threaded onto a metal skewer with big tomatoes and onions and barbecued over an open fire. And of course, served with a big plate of basmati rice. Ugh, just thinking about it makes my mouth water. But let's get back to my dad's story. So I asked a, bit, a little bit of English, whatever, how many days, how many days. Everybody says, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. Every day went by, I got more and more scared because the fact no one knew where I am. No one knew how to track me down. No one knew where I was. While I was walking around the yard, I see the X's on the wall. Some of the X's were 15. Some of the X's were 17 X's. Some of them were 19 or 13. So it gives me, a, it gives me at that time, it gave me a bit of hope. This is not going to last forever. I could only see the similar X's up to 17, 19 days max. So two days, three days went by, four days went by. Because of the food, I developed a very high diarrhea to the point it became the point of the dehydration. At night, I couldn't sleep as well because it was so cold at night. In a desert, it gets so cold, daytime gets very hot. Not only was it too cold to sleep, but the guards would blow their whistles every so often to make sure other guards didn't fall asleep. So instead of getting a good night's rest, my dad would walk around the courtyard until morning. So and in the meantime, other inmates or other runaway people from all over the world, they were from, majority from Colombia, El Salvador, Belize. They had absolutely nothing. I remember uh, three guys that were sleeping in the bathroom because it was gets very cold at night. They used to sleep in the bathroom, in the shower, in the bathroom. They wouldn't allow uh, people to use that bathroom because they used to sleep there. So we end up using a bathroom outside, which was exposed, no privacy whatsoever. We used that bathroom. The old man who set my dad up with a carton of milk on his first day saw how sick he was getting and alerted the guards. I hear my name through the gate. Uh, went to the gate. Uh, he said, uh, I'm a doctor. Come. A doctor actually was what's inmate himself as well. I went to his cell. He had full of medicine in, in a cell. And uh, he told me how many days. He asked me how many days. I said three days with all the, you know, with the, with the hands gesture and all that. And he gave me a medication. It was a brownish. He melted in a, in a water. He said, drink it. I drank it. And I shut down the whole system so quickly. Two days later, I hear my name again. 
Amir, I went to the gate. He said, how are you doing? I said, Doc, no, I'm constipated. I can't. I'm, it just stopped the whole thing. So he said, well, come back again. So I went back in again. He gave me something. My system by then got balanced. This is is gone through one week now. So at night, again, I couldn't sleep. One of the guys from Belize uh, woke up in the middle of the night. He said, why don't you sleep? I said, I'm cold. He said, just come. So we put one blanket uh, under ourselves, and then with the other blanket, we covered ourselves. So this way, I couldn't get a little bit of sleep because the floor, uh, the floor was so cold. Either I had to put it under myself or over myself. So, But with sharing with him, at least we could get a few hours of sleep. We're two weeks in now. My dad has somehow made a couple of friends without understanding a word of Spanish, but has not been able to communicate with anyone outside of the facility walls. His family has no idea where he is, and there is no sign of release. The more days went by, the more uh, weight I lost, the more I lost the hope. So how long this is going to last? Remember I told you I had that prey in Iran before I left? So I went, I washed Iranian, when they do the, the, the prey, they have to wash their arms, their, their feet, and all that. So I went, I washed my arm, I washed my feet, and I went on my knee. And I prayed. And I prayed. I plead with God. I said, this is too much. I can't take it anymore. Just show me the direction. End this. I can't, I can't keep up with this. And then in that moment, I cried. And then I could hear the pin drop in the whole yard. All the uh, inmates inside that prison in the yard was silence. What the hell is going on? I mean, what am I doing? I mean, a lot of them didn't understand the Muslim religion or Muslim pray. When I prayed and then I cried my eyes out. When I was finished, I got up and then everybody looked at me in an in in astonishing way as what had just happened. I can understand why some people would be staring when they've never seen a Muslim pray before. When Muslims pray, they kneel on the ground with their eyes closed and their hands on their knees. They bend forward and back, reciting the prayer to themselves out loud, back and forth, back and forth. This is the second time my dad prayed to God during his journey. This prayer he's talking about is called the Namaz Hajat, the prayer of need. Muslims believe that if you have a deep desire or need inside you, a genuine wish that your heart makes, and you recite the Namaz Hajat, then your prayers will be answered. One day, to my dad's absolute surprise, an Iranian man arrived at the prison. His name was Ibrahim. Oh my God, it was just, it was such a gift. It was such a blessing because he could speak fluent Spanish. He could speak fluent English. I asked all the questions I had for the last two weeks or so. I had all the questions. He answered it. And I told him, what's going on? What are we doing? Ibrahim was able to answer some of my dad's questions. He told my dad that since he had a return ticket, the authorities would eventually send him back. He didn't know when this would happen, but it was just a matter of time. So the very next day, the guard 
came to me and said, Amir, I have a good news for you. You're going. And every guys or every guys in the, in the yard jumped with the joy and all that. Everybody came to me and said, oh, because of you, you because you prayed, we are going home. Because of you, we're going home. You prayed, you prayed, you prayed, we're going home. So everybody was ecstatic and so happy. Had you ever really prayed up until this point? Like, were you, did you really, did you consider yourself very religious up until this point? No, no, only I prayed the night before I left Iran because I knew the next time I'm going to cross the border, I prayed. And on that day I was, that prayed too. So normally, no, I didn't, I wasn't praying at all and all that. But again, at the time in, in Islam, you, if you really, they said, if you desperate enough or you're within your heart and soul, you pray, things comes your way. So that's when I was very desperate. I went on my knees and I prayed and I did a namaz uh, for about half an hour or so in, in uh, Mexico jail. At any point, did you think that, oh, maybe I should believe in religion? Like, I know you're not a religious person, but it seems like religion actually, you know, some people spend their entire lives devoting themselves to a religion and don't see any results. But on two two singular occasions, you happen to seek, you know, guidance in God. Your prayers seem to have actually been answered. Yes. You know, the day before you left Iran, you said, you know, something sort of, you know, for example, that you by chance decided not to take that shortcut, which ended up being a hundred foot cliff where yes. you could have died. And you know, you used to say that that's chance, but is there maybe even a way that you could like if if you prayed beforehand, maybe that's. I always a stronger. I believe I still today today there is a strong belief. There is a there is a stronger power to control our destiny to guide us, whether it's a right or wrong. I never was an atheist. I always believed in God. I always believed in a power of the of someone or something as else is more power than us. That I never did that. But I never practiced in terms of religion or like some, some fanatics and all that. They they do that. No. I mean I consider myself a Muslim. I uh, I believe in uh, God as we as we know it introduced to us but never practice religion like some other people do or uh, anything else but at that time because that's the only thing I can grasp to I can hold on to that was my prayer because I was so mentally I was so desperate I didn't know where else could I reach other than my uh, belief or my God or my religion. Everyone thanked my dad for praying and saw this as the reason they were finally getting out of the prison. What they didn't know at the time was that they were waiting for the prison to get filled with more people until it was at capacity, at which point the detainees would be sent back to Mexico City. And what happens to them next is anyone's guess. And then with three guards with the guns, they put us in a bus. It was about two days ride from uh, Nogales to Mexico City. Throughout the journey, uh, they pulled over. They had the guards, they had their lunch. 
They go to get two a piece of plain sandwich bread as a, uh, for food for us. Luckily, Ibrahim was with my dad for the bus ride back to Mexico City. He'd help him buy some food through the small bus window from street vendors on the road, selling things like hot corn. He said, uh, do you have money? I said, yeah, I have some change, uh, Mexican pesos. I said, buy two for yourself, two for me. And then I had the uh, corn, and I was still so hungry. I ended up eating the whole, uh, the hard part of it. What do you call the hard? Corn? Yeah. Because I was so hungry after that, such a stomachache, uh, such a stomach. And Abraham says, what? I said, man, I've, I've, been, I've been starving for the last two and a half weeks. I'm hungry, but they, they didn't feed us anything. It was just uh, two pieces of bread. I have to warn you before we continue that this next story is graphic and contains content about rape and violence. If you prefer to skip this bit, you can fast forward three minutes. So yesterday when you were talking about that bus ride from Nogales to Mexico City. So you, you've just spent over two weeks in the jail and you're going back to Mexico City to be sent back to uh, Spain. I remember you telling me something that the first time you told me it was very hard for you to tell me. Um, and you left it out yesterday. Maybe you forgot about it or didn't feel comfortable saying it. But I think it's important to talk about what was happening on that bus, not just for you, but for the Mexicans, the Ecuadorians, Nicaraguans that were on that bus ride with you? Uh, the bus, like I said, it was quarter or plus. It was female from all ages. And uh, the rest, uh, there was all the males, uh, the rest of the bus and the male. And then the back of the bus, there was a bathroom. And then there was a section was uh, empty. So as it was getting dark, just about all the uh, guys or ladies or whatever, or sleep or to pretend to be asleep. And we were escorted with three guards. Those three guards, they picked the youngest woman, took it back to the bus and then raping the woman. It was very difficult to hear, but not much we could do. No one can. They had the guns and three guards, and the, they had power, I mean, in terms of power. And everybody just put their head down, plugged their ears, and then they just, the bus driver was riding, was just like nothing happening. And the guard made turn, they picked the youngest, the previous one, one by one, throughout the whole trip. Every time I bring it up, it, it breaks my heart. Now, having girls it just breaks my heart even 37 years later I'm still having a hard time to even saying it after a day and a half on the bus my dad arrives back in Mexico City where he's detained in what seems to be the main jail but it was actually a stadium any captured migrants attempting to cross the US-Mexico border were brought here my dad remembers there being a lineup of buses outside the stadium filled with detainees and waiting to be emptied. Remember earlier when my dad said there were people from all over the world being detained with him? Well, in the early 1980s, two policies by American President Ronald Reagan caused a refugee crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border and possibly Iran. The first policy was influenced by the Cold War with Soviet Russia. 
America defied its own sanctions and secretly sold weapons to Khomeini's regime in a war against Iraq, a Russian ally. With American weapons, Khomeini fought the war for eight years and cemented his power in Iran. What would have happened to the war and the Khomeini regime without American weapons is anybody's guess. An estimated two million Iranians left since the Islamic Revolution of 1979. And bringing us back to Mexico, America used the Iranian money to fund a right-wing militant group in Central America against a Russian-backed government. It destabilized the region, causing a refugee crisis. The second policy was the war on drugs. Reagan started military campaigns to fight drug cartels and spread herbicides by air through crop dusting to destroy drugs in South America. It further destabilized the continent, causing one of the biggest refugee crises that continues to ravage the region today. It must have been hard to feel any kind of hope when surrounded by faces bearing desperation and defeat. Throughout all of this, my dad was thinking about his family. How would his mother be affected if he didn't survive? How would she even know? She would have never had a closure. That was my biggest concern was for me at that time, whether crossing the border or I was in Mexico jail. That was my biggest concern. Back at the stadium-turned-attention facility, my dad is making friends. He befriends an Indian couple working in the prison kitchen, and they find out my dad had been nearly starving for over two days and take pity on him. From the kitchen, uh, he told his wife uh, inside the kitchen, uh, they brought me separate food to give me more food than more than the other inmate will take because they figured, you know, I was practically, I was starving for the last two and a half weeks. So they fed me for three days, pretty good husband and wife. Constantly, they gave me food. The time had finally come for my dad to be on his way back to Madrid. So for, I think it was four days later, the guard came in, announced my name. The two guards came, they put him in a, in a car, uh, take him towards the airport. And then uh, on the way to the airport, we were uh, a bit early, they pulled over, they had lunch. While, I'm, uh, while I watched them, they ate their lunch. They took me to the airport, went to the counter, they got my boarding pass. I have to jump in here to just say that 10-year-old Shada is so excited to share the story coming up next. When I was a kid, I must have asked my dad to tell me this story on repeat. I wanted to hear it over and over and over again. While we were uh, walk, uh, walking towards the uh, plane, in a hallway, I saw the lady in her 40s, so I sat in a separate uh, seat. Just before they were boarding the airplane, my dad noticed the same woman he saw in the hallway earlier was talking to the guards who were escorting him. He suspects that she was asking them about him, but given the language barrier, he couldn't know for certain. But some hand gestures and looks pointing in his direction while they talked was enough to speculate. I can imagine being deported would be quite the scene with a guard on either side of you, watching your every move and escorting you every step you take. So it would make sense that the woman would be curious about what was going on. My dad and the woman were seated at different areas of the plane, but as soon as the seatbelt sign went off, she immediately came to sit next to him. And I wasn't too sure what's going on or what I couldn't make it out what was happening. And then she asked my name, I introduced myself, she introduced herself. Uh, her name was uh, Libya Montes. And then she said, you speak French? I said, no. You speak English? No. 
speak Spanish? No. What do you speak, Farsi? Oh, my God. She's, she laughed. She said, okay, I, I talk, you listen. I said, okay. So she sat next to me. She beautifully dressed, obviously very rich. She had a, this diamond bracelet and all the fancy jewelry she was carrying, and she smelled so nice. And yet, me when I had one jean, one jacket, and very, you know, running shoes I was wearing. And she sat next to me, as much as I understood, and she said, oh, I'm from Colombia. I understand your situation. I have a younger brother like you, same age, same problem. Now we are talking between English, Spanish, and a body language with a, a hand gesture. A few minutes later, uh, they start serving uh, drink. So she said, do you drink? I said, no, thank you. No, I don't drink. She said, why not? I said, no, I don't drink. She said, you have no money? I said, no, uh, no, it's okay. She said, no, 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 I'll buy you some drink. So she called a stewardess. She bought two bottles of wine, mini wine, you know, this, this solemn in the plane. She drank two. I drank two. By then, I got a little bit of lightheaded, and the food came. The food came, and then the food was a beef stew, and then a beef steak, and, and it, needs to, it needed to be cut. And Iranian, they use cutlery, but we don't use, not too many people use fork and knife. We use a fork and a spoon. And I didn't know how to use, I'm a lefty, I didn't know how to use a fork and knife. So she saw I'm uh, struggling with it. She said, give me that. She grabbed a plate and then she cut all those uh, pieces of meat in a big chunkers. And then she said, here, I finished in two seconds. She said, boy, you're hungry. Wow, you're hungry. Here, she gave me her food as well. I said, no, 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 I don't want your food. No, she said, no, go ahead, finish. I had her food. By then we had four bottles of wine each. Not full bottles. The mini ones, in case you didn't catch that earlier. I got lightheaded. I start talking. I don't know what language I was talking, but I start talking. You were laughing, and I forgot about all the pain for last two and a half weeks or 18 days. She was so comforting. She was so comforting. And then we ordered some more drink. By then, she had no small change. She opened up her wallet. I saw the stack of $100 U.S. bill. She gave $100 to a stewardess. Her stewardess says, ma'am, I can't change this. It's too big or too much or larger. I said, no, go change it. She went change it and bought more drink. By then, I was already half drunk. In the meantime, she would leave her purse and a wallet, go to the bathroom, come back. This beautiful stranger has a wallet filled with $100 bills that she has left unattended. And for my dad, who has struggled so much since he left Iran and currently on the brink of starvation, is obviously tempted. $100 to Libya might be nothing, but for my dad, it was everything. And I looked her purse, I looked all the stack of dollar or money there, and I looked at him and I said to God, are you testing me? Are you trying to tell me something? I am not going to sell my soul. 
I am not going to, no matter how bad I am, I am not going to take this. This is me talking out loud to myself while she was leaving her purse, going back and forth to the bathroom. So she, we talked, we talked and talked. And then, like I said, I forgot most of my suffering of what I did for two and a half weeks. She was such a nice lady. I'm not a religious person, but someone must have been watching my dad pass this test because Livia gave my dad a $100 bill. She gave me $100 out of her purse. She said, this is your money. So with the $100 bill, I gestured, I put it towards my, my heart. I said, this is for you. I will keep it as a memory. She said, no, 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 no. Call the stewardess again. Stewardess says, go uh, break this $100. The guy says, ma'am, I cannot do this. This is too much. Anyways, he went around the airplane, finally uh, changed the $100. She came back. She signed a dollar bill. She said, keep this. We'll spend the rest. She signed a Libya Montes. I kept a dollar. And she gave me her phone number and a mailing address on my little uh, book I had. I wish so much that my dad kept this dollar bill. He told me he lost it along with his notebook after arriving in Canada. It's interesting how these objects can be the most important things we have, but when our lives shift and change, we can eventually lose track of them. Now Libya is just a memory. Even still, I've spent years looking for Libya, and every time I get deeper into a Google dive, I create my own, like, fan fiction of who she was. The first big question mark in my research was when I Googled just her name. Turns out Libya Montez is the name of a highland terrain on Mars, described to look like a face seen from multiple satellites. The way my dad describes her and the way he reminds her of her brother, someone in handcuffs, had me imagining a mob wife. Or maybe she's a successful businesswoman. Some search results also had me linked to a couple of land titles and business licenses, mostly in Florida. Maybe Libya was a successful real estate investor. The guard gave my passport to the captain of the plane and told the captain, he, you give his passport back in Spain. To my dad's surprise, Libya had an incredible idea. I saw the custom officer came, sat next to me, and Libya said, I'm going to take you to Miami with me. So she left all her purse, uh, everything beside me. She went to the custom. So in the meantime, all the new passengers are boarding the plane for flying towards the Spain. My dad watches the passengers staying in Miami exit the plane and the new ones heading for Madrid enter. All the while, sitting next to Libya's open purse and waiting in desperate anticipation to see if she'll be able to take my dad with her. Is this the moment he's been waiting for? Is he just steps away from entering the US? And then they cannot close the door because they know one passenger left their purse, everything. She's arguing with the, with the custom for me to get me to go to U.S. By then, the whole passenger, uh, all the passengers are uh, on board. They're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting. And I saw Libya came to the door. I was four or five seats away from the door. And Libya came, uh, she yelled, Amir, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I cannot take you. I shook my head. I was drunk anyway. I said, it's okay. It's okay. I grabbed her purse. I grabbed all her belongings. I went towards the halfway towards the door. 
I give her the, all of her belonging, and she grabbed it, and she came, she gave me, <laughs> she gave me a French kiss on my lips. Oh my God! I never forget the kiss. I never forget the kiss, and it was a long kiss as well. And with that, the custom officer went. She went out, and I turned around. I saw all the passengers that <laughs> looking at me with their, my God, their mouth was dropped. What the hell just happened? Who was that guy? Who was that lady? What the hell this uh, young man or whatever rough-looking guy doing with that beautiful lady? My dad goes back to his seat, feeling defeated, but still a bit drunk in love from the wine. He had a long journey ahead of him. Miami to Madrid. It's fun to go off and imagine what my dad's journey could have looked like if he got off the airplane that day and went home with Libya into a life of organized crime or Miami real estate. Or perhaps I've been watching too much of The Sopranos. I like imagine this woman with like wearing furs and red lipstick and like really done hair. I don't know if that's how he described her or that's just how I have her in my mind. I called my younger sister, Ida, to see what she remembers about the story of Libya Montez. Have you ever, so like one thing that I was like talking about or like joking about is that I like almost created like fan fiction about her, like who she is, like what, what does she do? Like what's her life? Did you ever like make up a story about like who this person is? No, but I did try and like indulge in what would have happened if Bubba was allowed to go with her. What do you think? Well, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here, so uh, <laughs> not so good. But it'd be kind of like the prince and the pauper, but like reversed. <laughs> a Cinderella story with a man. I mean, I've looked for her, con- I look for her constantly. I even went so far as, so um, one of the first things that comes up when you look up her name is there's a rock formation on Mars called Libya Montez. No way which is super weird. So I actually messaged the association that names things on planets. And I asked them if they have, if this like Libya Montez mountain range was named after a person. Um, I haven't really, yeah, no strong leads. Do you think Bubba remembered the name wrong? A part of me wonders that, but he like, I don't know, that story is so like strong with him, you know? So I don't know, how can you make up a name like that? Right. When he arrived back in Madrid, my dad met up with his Iranian friends again, and he told them the story. And I think they too thought this was some kind of fan fiction story. They thought for sure my dad has to be exaggerating. The story about Libya could not be true. They said, no, there is no such a thing, man. I mean, come on, man. I mean, don't exaggerate. Don't lie. Anyways, I stayed a day in a hostel in Madrid. I went back to Barcelona. And obviously the friend in Barcelona wasn't too happy to see me. Ahmad was not super friendly. He told my dad that his roommates were less than thrilled to have an extra body in the house. So my dad felt pressure to continue his journey. His first attempt to make it to the U.S. through Mexico failed. He would have to reevaluate and figure out a different way. So I have another childhood friend who grew up together. He was living in, uh, in Italy. So by then, my money was getting shrink and shrink more and more because this Mexico, staying in a hostel in Madrid and traveling all that, my money was, was becoming very small. 
And then I phoned my friend in Italy. He said, oh, why don't you come to Italy and then stay with me for a while then. As better forget about the U.S. Forget about the U.S. Let's let's come back. Uh, let's come stay with me. I've been living here for almost uh, six months or eight months. It's okay. We'll make it. So we went to Italian embassy, show some money, show a return ticket, bought a ticket to Milan. My dad accepts his invite. The plan was to fly to Milan and from there take a train to Rome, where his friend would then meet him at the station. Sounded simple enough, but things didn't exactly work out. So, buy the ticket, say goodbye, uh, four or five o'clock in the afternoon, flew to Milan, and landed in Milan, went through the custom, and then as soon as the custom officer saw me, pressed the button, two, three guards came in. Guy was almost six foot five or whatever it was, big guy, monster guy. With two other police officers came in, took me to the office, and then he saw my Iranian passport. No, you have to go back. I said, what do you mean I have to go back? I have a visa, I have money. No, I need you to go back. I said, I'm not going back. You're not going back? And then he, with a head gesture, he pointed out to the guards, the boat, one hold on one my arm, the other one hold my arm. He had a few punch in my stomach. His hand was as big as uh, the watermelon. It was just such a big hand, and just practically I went to the floor, almost passed out. Next time on The Hopeful. This, they asked me to leave. I said, but guys, I don't have money. I, uh, where would I go? Uh, they really didn't care. They said, no, you have to leave. People says, why don't you go to Canada? It just didn't appeal to me. I thought, mm, I'd rather go to U.S. than Canada. I wasn't feeling good myself either. Those were bad days for all of us. Got myself a place to stay in a hostel, in a room. And then I started working in a restaurant as doing a dish uh, dishwasher. I second-guessed myself whether this is worth it or not. Why am I doing this? My heart just bled for him. I saw the fear in his eyes. I saw he was just a young young man lost. I told my husband, we need to help this young man, whatever it takes. The Hopeful is part of the Frequency Podcast Network. Written and created by myself and Portia Larley. It's produced by Claire Brassard. Sound mixing by Ryan Clark. Our research assistant is Deepak Bidwai. And our original theme song, the one you're hearing right now, is by Ansh. Find him on Instagram at Ench Music. Special thanks to my sister Ida. I'm Shada Omidvar, Tabarna Mayabad, Be Omida Didar. <laughs> <laughs>